This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Our first guest today is Austin Chronicle staff writer Austin Sanders, who is here to talk about AISD's long-awaited and arguably much dreaded school changes plan. Austin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here. So, Austin, about this time last week, AISD unveiled a pretty major document revealing a series of proposals for the future of the school district. Tell us what are the proposed changes and what is AISD trying to accomplish with them? Yeah, so it's uh, an extensive um, list of what they're calling uh, scenarios that are still in draft form, so they'll be modified and tweaked uh, before they're adopted in November. Um, But basically what they're doing is they're going to do things like close schools, um, move students from some schools to other schools, redraw some um, boundary lines, um, move academic programming, extracurricular programming, stuff like that um, around the district. And the ultimate goal, as they say, is to provide um, more equitable access and opportunity for students um, all over the district. So um, the uh, district's um, new equity officer, uh, her name is Stephanie Hawley, um, the way she put it to me is uh, her ultimate goal is to make sure that um, you can't predict a student's success based on their race or any other kind of human difference. Um, so you wrote about this in this week's issue, and you you said something in there that I thought was was worth drawing attention to, which is equity can be a squishy word. I think equity is what runs throughout uh, both your story and the the issue at large. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, you know, as I as I say in the story, is there are a lot of different definitions, and it kind of depends on who you're talking to. Different. Um, school communities require different things um, and resources. Uh, so for the district, it means looking you know, individually at each school and community and trying to determine what those students need uh, to succeed. So um, a lot of times, uh, at least for the east side where the majority of school closures uh, are happening, it's um, better facilities. Um, a lot of the, the schools over there are older and aging, uh, and the district says that their students can't, um, you know, learn as effectively in those spaces. Um, So it's about closing down um, some of the schools that are older um, and that have uh, uh, smaller student populations and basically using the savings that the district uh, would get by not having to operate those schools and reinvesting them in the remaining um, schools on the east side um, uh, or, you know, really anywhere in town, but um, reinvesting those dollars in a way that will um, help students uh, succeed better. Let me just take a pause there and uh, give you a reminder that this is the Co-op Fall Membership Drive. We could not bring you this show each week without your financial support. Volunteers are standing by waiting for you to call 512-472-5667, or you can donate donate online at coop.org. So this process has been dubbed school changes, which is a, a pretty anodyne term to use for something that's actually very personal and, and can be pretty devastating for, for students and their parents. Um, especially if it's their school that's being threatened with closure. Let's talk about 
It's only east side schools, really, on the chopping block? Is that well, right? Well, for the most part. Um, right. There are a couple that are uh, west of I-35, but as a lot of activists have pointed out, none are uh, west of Lamar Boulevard, where you know Austin's highest concentrations of wealth are. So uh, it's, it's not all east side schools, but definitely the majority of students who will be impacted uh, um, you know, by the changes and the closures specifically uh, are from um, uh, low-income families. Uh, and that's been a big uh, criticism lobbied at the district since these plans uh, were released last week. Um, the district would say, well, the reason that's happening is because uh, we're going to invest more in those communities and help them more. Uh, but, um, you know, there's still a lot of skepticism on well on whether or not that will actually happen um, once the plans are implemented over the next several years. Well, and we should stress these are all just proposals at this point. Nothing has been officially decided. And also, there's a very long timeline to put everything into effect. So what is, what is the next step? Yeah, so the next steps will be to continue um, uh, gathering feedback from the community. That's been a focus from the district. Um, you know, I think they have looked at previous uh, district leaders who have attempted to do uh, these kind of closures and transformative changes, and um, they were accused of not really engaging with the community. So the district is, is very aware of that, and they intend to hold uh, more sessions where they'll meet with impacted uh, schools and communities and try and uh, learn what is what is good about the scenarios and what could be tweaked and then continue to kind of modify everything until November uh, when the board will finally uh, vote on the scenarios uh, and, you know, actually establish them as policy. Uh, and again, it'll be a multi-year uh, implementation plan. So these changes will be spread out over several years. What in speaking with the impacted families, uh, what kind of reaction have is there out there now? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of emotion uh, in this uh, in this issue. Anytime a school closes, it's it's you know very disruptive uh, to to students and their families. Um, that's one thing that I'm hearing a lot, uh, which is a big criticism of of you know the uh, disproportionate impact that lower income students will have. They already face more challenges at school than more affluent or students from more affluent families. Uh, so adding this additional disruption of uh, kind of, you know, something that's usually a stable uh, part of a, a community uh, and essentially taking it away, uh, that can be, you know, uh, cause more stress and, and problems for those families uh, and the students in the schools. Um, so there's a lot of concern around that. And also, I think there's just a lot of uh, identity, a lot of um, loyalty that people uh, have invested in the schools that they're uh, supposed to go to or are on track to go to. And so when those kind of changes are made for families, it can kind of, you know, cause a lot of concern. Sure. I mean, I imagine some of these kids are generations in of their family going to a particular school. Also, homeowners buy property specifically to go to a certain school. Do we think that the this feedback time? Do do we think that they that the board is going to be listening and possibly taking some of these schools off the table? Well, they say they are. And one concern I hear in the community is there are certainly some schools on the list that are from uh, more privileged, more wealthier communities that would, you know, in theory, have more power and sway with the district. Uh, and, you know, the concern is that they'll be able to, to argue their way off the list, whereas some of the less privileged schools who, you know, their their families may not have as much time or resources 
resources to devote to essentially lobbying uh, the school board, uh, they may not have as much recourse. Uh, so the district, they say, are very aware of that and don't want that to happen. Um, it's worth noting, too, that the, the 12 schools identified for closure, um, most of them were on a previous list from eight years ago uh, of schools that were identified for closure. So the district has been looking at most of these campuses for a while, um, which I've heard from some would indicate that, you know, the list is probably not set to change very much between now and November. Um, I've heard some, you know, kind of special cases that, um, uh, you know, the, that their advocates, the community advocates say deserve uh, special attention. Webb Middle School is one of them there. That community has been developing a, a plan to improve the school and the community, uh, and they really want a shot to implement it, and they fear closure. Um, you know, obviously they, they won't have a chance to do that. Well, Austin, you're going to keep reporting on a, on this for us, uh, on everything that happens with the, the school changes process. But since you're here, I did want to ask you real quick. You cover City Hall for us, and a lawsuit dropped today. Uh, can you tell, tell yeah, us about so, it? Yeah, uh, so former uh, uh, council member Don Zimmerman, um, he used to represent uh, District 6, now represented by Jimmy Flanagan. Uh, he decided to sue his former colleagues uh, based on a budget amendment that was adopted uh, earlier this week. Uh, and uh, uh, the budget amendment would, you know, uh, provide $150,000 for the city to help um, uh, women seeking abortions. Uh, it would help connect them uh, with service providers by uh, paying for their travel uh, or uh, uh, their lodging if needed. And, you know, uh, Zimmerman sees this as a as a way to get around a state law that was passed uh, in the recently concluded legislative session, which uh, banned cities from partnering with uh, ab uh, abortion providers. So uh, the city is was aware of that, and they saw this as a way of helping our residents, uh, uh, you know, without violating that law. Well, when Zimmerman was on council, he certainly provided a lot of fodder for us, for journalists in town, and, you know, Thanks, thanks to Zimmerman for giving us more more material. So yeah. we'll have more about that in next week's issue of the Austin Chronicle. And until then, Austin, thanks for coming in. Sure, thanks for having me. Joining me now is Chronicle Arts and Culture editor Robert Ferris, here to talk about a new and rather historic exhibit at the Umlauf Sculpture Garden and Museum. Robert, thanks for coming in. Good to be here. Tell us about Michael Ray Charles. Well, Michael Ray Charles is... Uh, an artist who spent a lot of time in Austin. He taught at the University of Texas for like 20 years, uh, but he's actually better known, I think, outside of Austin. He made a terrific reputation for himself in the 90s, uh, doing artwork that is um, provocative, let's say. Uh, it deals directly with race. Uh, Michael Ray Charles took uh, images uh, a lot from 19th century uh, visual representations of people of African descent. And uh, we're think of Aunt Jemima, think of Uncle Tom, Sambo. He would use these and he would put them in new contexts. For instance, Aunt Jemima in a Wonder Woman costume or as Rosie the Riveter. And uh, recreate old magazine covers or advertisements for the circus. And a lot of times he would add in very loaded text, like a grinning, uh, sort of sinister-looking clown that says, hi, I'm your new neighbor. Basically, 
you do not look at his work and come away with sort of a neutral attitude. He is challenging you to think about race, to think about the images that uh, African-Americans, blacks were have been historically represented by. And some of these he actually got by collecting um, figurines that represent these, you know, like a, a, an Aunt Jemima, Uncle Tom, salt and pepper shaker collection. Mm -hmm. He was originally given these as a gift, and then he started collecting them himself just to see, have, have this basic uh, pool of images to draw from. So Michael Ray Charles was represented on the PBS series Art 21, uh, Art in the 21st Century. That was a big deal. It, it exposed him to a huge audience. He's shown all over the United States and in Europe. And his work is included in collections, important museum collections, important private collections. So he's really well known. And what makes this exhibit historic is uh, last year he was one of the winners of the Rome Prize, very prestigious uh, visual art world uh, honor. He was, he, as a result, he got to spend most of last year in Italy. Uh, there was a great international exhibition of all the Rome Prize winners, and he's only recently back. And so the showing at the Umlauf Sculpture Garden and Museum is his first exhibit in the United States since he's been back. It's also his first exhibit in the United States in 18 years. Oh, wow. Well, I want to ask you about sort of that experience because I know you went and, and, and spoke with him while he was doing the final touches on the exhibit. But before we get to that, I did want to remind our listeners that this is the Co-op Fall Membership Drive. Co-op is community radio for Austin and it needs your support. So please call 512-472-5667 with your pledge or you can donate online at KOOP. Org. Okay, Robert, back to tell me tell me what it was like going to speak to to him. Well, it was fascinating in part because he was actually working on this gigantic site-specific piece. It was a piece created specifically for this exhibition at the Umlauf, uh, and he was painting on it while I was talking to him. This piece is 19 feet tall. Oh wow. And about 12 feet wide, and it looks like it's a sailcloth. It looks like it came off the, the sails of a ship. And he has painted on it kind of in silhouette, uh, a silhouette of a slave ship. I mean, here we are, the 400th anniversary of the first Africans' slaves arriving in Virginia. And across this silhouette are dozens of tiny little... Uh, semicircles painted red like watermelon slices. This is a, an image he has used in uh, a number of his works, and uh, they are superimposed over the mouths of uh, black faces. It looks like a black child, but it has that sort of coal black skin that was often used to represent uh, people of African descent in these old images. Uh, it's not a natural skin color for anybody, but it's what was used in representing this. So it was exciting to hear him talk uh, about that while he's actually working, mm. trying to finish this piece. Uh, he's uh, incredibly smart about 
what he's trying to do because he is working from images. He's not trying to tell you anything specific about people. He's working from visual representations of people related to African Americans and blacks. For instance, there's an image of an empty rowboat. And behind it, in kind of a faded sepia tones, is an image of a kind of Al Jolson figure in blackface, a minstrel figure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, whatever you think about Al Jolson, what he's really, what the image really says is this was a representation of uh, black people in the entertainment industry in the 19th and 20th century. So you're kind of looking at that reflection and trying to get that. And he, he talks very specifically about drawing on uh, those images to try to ask questions. For instance, there's a series of prints, beautiful set of seven prints that he made at Flatbed Press here in Austin uh, last year. And in the prints, you see uh, roses in this sort of faded hues like you would see on a 19th century greeting card. But he juxtaposes them against faces like uh, I mentioned on the, on the sailboat, uh, on the sail, the, uh, a, a black child uh, with this coal black skin. But the roses are framing the face in different ways and what Michael Ray Charles told me was he was asking questions about beauty. He was thinking about representations of beauty. And obviously, you know, roses as a rep representation of beauty goes back a long way. But in juxtaposing them against this face, this black face, uh, he's trying to get the viewer to ask questions of himself about what is beauty. And the last frame in the print is very much like the, the site-specific piece he was painting in that it's, we no longer see any roses, but we see a, a print completely of these black faces with the little watermelon slices over their mouths. So it's very powerful. It, does, it sounds like a very powerful exhibit. Um, the Michael Ray Charles solo exhibit is on view at the Umlauf Sculpture Garden and Museum through January 3rd, 2020. So people have lots of time to, to go check it out. And there are a number of special programs related to this. Um, there's going to be in, uh, in October a screening of Ava DuVernay's 13th. Uh, and then in December, the first week of December, there's a public symposium titled Approaching Otherness. So there are many ways to engage with this exhibition, and I think uh, Austinites owe it to themselves to check it out. Absolutely. Well, find, you can find more information about this with, uh, in your excellent interview with Michael Ray Charles in this week's issue, which is on newsstands now. Robert, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again to my guests this week, Austin Sanders and Robert Ferris. Thanks also go to our engineer, Evan Hearn, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. And one last word, we said goodbye to Daniel Johnston this week, who suffered a fatal heart attack on Tuesday. An outsider artist and hugely influential singer-songwriter, Johnston cast a very long shadow in Austin and all around the world. You can find out more about Johnston, his art, his sometimes troubled life, in this week's issue, which is out on newsstands now in Austin, and you will know it when you see it. He's on our cover. <laughs>